Good morning, guys. It's great to be with you this morning. If you don't know me, my name is John McCormick. Wow, that is bright. <clears throat> that came very quickly. Uh, my name is John McCormick. I am the leader of Renovation U here. Uh, Renovation U is our summer theology classes we do. And so from time to time, David lets me get up and keep 300 people captive instead of 30 people captive at a time. So congratulations. We're going to have a great time this morning. Let me start by asking you guys a question. You ever heard of this phrase, fish story? You ever told a fish story before? If you're not familiar with the phrase, it comes from fishermen who would tell stories about how they caught a fish this big. And the next time they told it, the fish was this big. And then the fish was this big. And then eventually the fish was a shark that they caught in Malax, which is, seems unlikely. But these stories start off innocent enough. They're, they're mundane or there's something that's, you know, moderately interesting. But it exaggerates over time. It grows and grows and grows. Now, I'm not much of a fisherman myself, but I got to go fishing a couple times this summer, which was a lot of fun, and I had a pretty bizarre experience in one of those trips that I wanted to share with you, and that's, I caught a fish that was eating another fish as I caught it, and so I pull this fish up, and I open up its mouth, and there's a fish inside, and I'm like, this doesn't seem right. Now, you may think that's a fish story, but I actually have proof for you. It's hard to see, but in the middle of that fish's mouth, there's a little fish, so the bass is eating what I believe to be a sunny. I named the bass Big Fish, and I named the sunny Jonah. Seemed, a, seemed appropriate. And what I wanted to spend some time today, this is a very helpful illustration, because what I want to talk about today with you guys is the biggest fish story that we have in the Bible, the story of Jonah. There's a whole book dedicated to it, the story of Jonah, uh, and we're going to go through that today, today together. And the crazy thing is, is that this fish story is actually also true, like my fish story was as well. I'm not making that up. That's photographic proof, and there's people in this room that can verify it. But we also know that the, the Bible story about Jonah is also true. So we're going to spend the whole day in the book of Jonah, and we're actually going to go through the entire book. So I encourage you, go under your chairs and grab the Bible that's down there, and we'll be reading throughout the book. If you're normally a Renovation Church app person or reading it off the screen, I strongly encourage you to, to take the Bible under your chair today, because we're, we're literally going to read all over the whole book. So it's really nice to have it. In those Bibles under the chair, it's going to be on page 753. Now, I want to give you a little bit of context on Jonah before I dive into the text, because you may not know much about Jonah, because we don't know a whole lot about him in the Bible. What we do know is that Jonah was a prophet. So he was a prophet like Elijah or Elisha or those guys that were going around prophesying and giving God's word to the people of Israel. He was around during the time of King Jeroboam II, who was a wicked king in Israel, and King Amaziah of Judah, who was a okay kind of king, not like really bad and not great, somewhere in the middle. But these two kings were ruling sometime in the 700s BC. So Jonah's around prophesying during that time. And we see in 2 Kings 14.25, the author records that Jonah is prophesying about Jeroboam II, saying that he'll expand the borders of Israel back to their original size as a part of his kingdom. And it happens. It comes true. So we know that Jonah must have at least been somewhat known in the land of Israel as a prophet uh, because he was prophesying and those things came true. But we don't really know much more about Jonah besides what's actually in the book of Jonah. We know that little bit from 2 Kings, but then everything else we know about him is in the book of Jonah. So we're going to learn more about, about him by starting off today in chapter 1, right at verse 1, and we're going to jump all over the book today and go through it. So, start in Jonah 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. So what we see here is 
God speaks to Jonah, because he's a prophet, he hears from God. He says, go to Nineveh. And Jonah, without any warning, just bolts for Joppa, heading to Tarshish. It's something of a a fishy response, because we don't get any explanation as to why. Why does Jonah run? Why does he not obey God? He's making his run for Tarshish. This is very, very far away. He's, He's literally trying to run away from God. Tarshish, scholars believe, is in modern day Spain. So he's in Israel, he's going to Joppa to sail potentially a multi week trip across the Mediterranean Sea to get to Tarshish and to get away. Now, just to give you a little bit of context around why Jonah might have run from the Ninevites, we'll talk about it a little bit more in a little bit. But Jonah was a Jew, and the Ninevites were not Jews, and those two people groups hated one another. They did not get along, they were very, very. Uh, angry at one another. Imagine that Jonah's a Vikings fan, and the Ninevites are a Packers fan, and that kind of gives you an idea of the relationship that's going on there. Let me quickly summarize what kind of happens next in the chapter. So, God sends this crazy storm out on the water, and the ship is breaking apart. The, the storm is so strong, the waves are so big that the ship is, is coming apart. And the sailors are freaking out, and they're pitching all of the cargo overboard, trying to lighten the load to keep the ship afloat. Meanwhile, Jonah is sleeping below deck. Apparently the waves were just nice enough, like Rockabye Baby, that he was sleeping through it all. So he's under, he's under the deck asleep as the storm is raging. And eventually the crew figures out, Jonah is the reason this storm is happening. Jonah is at fault for it. So they grab Jonah, and after much debate, chuck him into the water, and the storm stops. As fast as the storm came, the storm stops. And what's fascinating is as Jonah's busy sinking to presumably his death, the sailors are up on board on the ship actually essentially giving their lives to God. They offer sacrifices to God, trying to, to please God and say, we'll follow you, God. We, we believe in you now. So in the midst of Jonah's disobedience, he was supposed to go to Nineveh and save those people by, by preaching to them. Instead, he accidentally saved a bunch of sailors on a boat. God still moved through his disobedience to save people. And it kind of makes you think about your own life a little bit. Has there ever been a time in your life where you've maybe disobeyed God and God still used it? Where God has moved even though you didn't really follow what he wanted you to do? God doesn't need our obedience to accomplish what he's going to do. And sometimes through our disobedience, he will still accomplish things or accomplish other things that may have not been done otherwise. But we'll see here in a minute that it is far better to follow God gladly and follow him the way we're supposed to versus trying to run away. So these men are above water thanking God praising him for saving them, Jonah's below water experiencing probably the most amazing fish story of all time. So it picks up again in verse 17. It says this, Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So at this point, you have to imagine, Jonah's probably freaking out a little bit. He thought he was going to drown, and then a giant fish comes and eats him. I, I would be freaking out inside of a giant fish if it were me. And you have to think about this too. It probably smells fishy, and there's no food or water, and Pinocchio's sitting in the corner eyeing him weird, saying, what are you doing here? And so he's in, a, he's in a bad spot, and he sits there for three days and three nights. We don't know what he's doing, but he's certainly not crying out to God during that time, because we see chapter two begins with, and Jonah prayed to God. So three days and three nights have passed, and Jonah finally decides that he's going to reach out to God. And he says, thank you, God for saving me with this fish, for saving my life from drowning. You gave me the fish to save me. Thank you. And he recommits to following his vows. The vows would have been things that um, prophets would have taken at the time to say, you know, God, I'm going to follow you. When you command me, I'm going to go. 
And he, he broke those vows by trying to run to Tarshish. And he says, God, I will follow my vows, and I will follow after you. And so he seems to have repented, right? He seems to be back in, in following God's instructions. And so the story continues in verse 10 in chapter 2. And it says, The Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. I like that they use the word vomited, because it makes me think of like a cat yacking up a fur ball. So the fish is doing this as it's throwing Jonah up, and then projectile vomits him onto the beach. So the story picks up. Jonah's now on the beach, chapter 3 in Jonah, and God gives him the same command. Go to Nineveh and preach. And the story continues again. Chapter 3, verse 3. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now Nineveh was a very large city, and it took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. What's amazing here is the people of Nineveh don't just ignore Jonah. We, these people are wicked. These people are sinful. And we would expect someone like that to ignore Jonah. The sad thing is, is if Jonah had preached that same message in Israel, God's chosen people, they would have ignored him. Tons of other prophets had been preaching messages just like this in Israel, and they were ignoring it. But these Ninevites, who don't know God immediately respond and begin to follow him and fast. They fast. Fasting, if you don't know what fasting is, fasting is not eating for a period of time to, to pray. It's sort of a special way of praying to, to God. And they put on sackcloth. Sackcloth is really uncomfortable. Imagine like wearing burlap clothing. It's kind of what we're talking about. It's uncomfortable clothing that's used for mourning to show that you're very, very sad and that you're seeking uh, favor from God. And it's crazy because it isn't just one group of people that does this. It's literally everyone in the city, from the greatest to the least, puts on this sackcloth and starts fasting. They even make the animals fast. The cows and the sheep and the goats are all fasting as well. They don't let them eat because they're so fervent in how they want to seek God's favor and mercy in saving them. Notice how even the king responds to this. So in chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, this is what the king says. He says, let everyone urgently, call, call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent with compassion and turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Notice the king doesn't say, we're going to do this and God will save us. He's not that confident. This king is used to being in absolute control. He's used to just making a declaration and that's the way it is. There is no authority above the king in Nineveh because the king is effectively God. But this king identifies very, very quickly that God is so much mightier than he is that even he has to submit. That's a big deal for a king to do that to give up his status and give it to someone else and say, we're going to do this. And that's without him even knowing if it will work. You see what it says there? He says, he may relent and have compassion. He doesn't know. They don't know if they're going to be able to stop God's wrath that's coming. And so without knowing if it's going to work or not, all these people turn from their evil ways. All these people begin to, to mourn and fast and call on God. They could have chosen to keep doing what they were doing. They could have chosen to ignore Jonah, but they don't. And what this becomes is an interesting contrast between Jonah and Nineveh. Because Jonah, God says, go to Nineveh, and Jonah says, nah, peace, and he runs the other direction. But the Ninevites obey God immediately. Jonah knows God. Jonah's a prophet. He's heard from God before. He's aware of God. He has followed God in the past. Nineveh has no context. And Jonah's the one who runs afraid, and Nineveh is the one that obeys and does what they're 
called to do immediately and are so fervent in their shift and how they seek God that God actually relents. He does not destroy them because they obeyed. Now, if you've heard this story before, the story of Jonah, especially if you heard it when you were younger in like a kid's church kind of situation, you might think that this is a story of redemption for Jonah. Or you might think that the story is effectively over at the end of chapter 3. God saves Nineveh, everyone's happy, and the story's done. We see this story as a, uh, a hero who messes up and repents and then rises to do great things. Our culture even paints him this way. They paint Jonah as a timid hero who is just afraid of what greatness might become to him or might happen to him if he actually obeyed what he was supposed to do. But the final chapter of Jonah, chapter 4, which is one most people don't even seem to know exists, paints Jonah in a very, very different light. Our hero turns out to not be a hero at all, as we'll see here in a minute. He's not the hero of the story. And we'll spend some time in house groups this week talking about that contrast of how culture looks at Jonah one way and how the Bible paints Jonah pretty differently. So I encourage you, if you're not in house group, sign up this week and, and, hear, and talk about that this week in house groups. But look at how Jonah responds. So God saves Nineveh. He chooses to relent. And then we go into chapter 4, and this is how Jonah responds. So chapter 4 in Jonah, verse 1. It says, But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. That's God having mercy. I, know, I knew that you were a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Holy buckets. That is quite a response from a guy who's supposed to be following God and to be a prophet. Let me read the last sentence one more time. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Jonah would rather die than live in a world where God has mercy on the Ninevites. That's a very, very strong response to something that Jonah should not have. Jonah should be in line with God saying, yes, let's save those people. But it's the exact opposite. And so we ask the question, why? Why does Jonah respond this way? Why is he so vehemently against God saving Nineveh? Understanding the context that Jonah lived in gets us a little bit of insight into why he might have come to these conclusions as the only option, which was to destroy Nineveh. I'll give you three reasons why. The first one is, he knew that Nineveh was extremely sinful and wicked. And extremely sinful and wicked nations get punished. Punishment is the appropriate response to those kinds of things. God should punish the wicked. That seems right in his mind. The second reason is, like we talked about, the Ninevites are not Jews. The Jews, or the nation of Israel, are God's chosen people. Throughout the Old Testament, he's blessing them, he's seeking after them, he's not giving up on them when they screw up, he's chasing after them, but he's not chasing after all these other nations. So why would God show compassion to a nation he really shouldn't care about because they're not Jews? And the last reason is, he knows Jewish history. Jonah is a, as a prophet, he knows the history of Israel, and he knows that God sent Israel to wipe out nations off the face of the earth. There are conquests in Canaan, which becomes the promise, which is the promised land for them, becomes the nation of Israel, they obliterate nations from the face of the earth because of their sinfulness. In Genesis, we get the story about Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities that are incredibly wicked, probably on the same level as Nineveh is. And God wipes them off the face of the earth by sending fire and brimstone from heaven to completely annihilate them. And so Jonah's thinking, well, they're that sinful and Nineveh's that sinful, so we should just, you know, wipe them off, right? It makes sense. Now, 
don't misunderstand me here. I'm not saying Jonah is right in his assumptions and how he's approaching the situation. He is way off base. But based on his worldview, based on his perspective that he's bringing to this situation, punishment seems like the only option. These Ninevites are not worthy of forgiveness. They're not worthy of second chances. They deserve to be destroyed. But the people of Nineveh aren't the only ones to get second chances, right? Jonah gets a second chance. The Ninevites, when they're given their second chance, repent. They turn away from their evil ways. They believe. They don't know who God is, and they follow him anyways. But Jonah, who should have obeyed the first time, when he's in the fish, he seems to have a change of heart, right? He seems like he's going to go to Nineveh now and do what he's supposed to, and that his, he's aligned with what God wants. But you, you would have thought the prophet of God would be the one to obey the first time, or the one to repent immediately inside the fish, or the one who went to, to Nineveh and just did what he was supposed to gladly. But none of those are true. It takes him three days and three nights inside of a stinky fish to decide he's going to actually follow God, which means he's basically on death's door when he makes this decision. You can go, what, approximately a couple, three, four days without water? He, there, there's no wa- he's in a fish, in a salt water body, and so he has no water. He's basically going to die before he decides, okay, I'll cry out to God and ask for help. And even then, his change of heart, with air quotes, is not a change of heart at all. We see that in the beginning of chapter 4. He actually is just doing the, the, he's following the motions. He's going through the motions is the phrase. He's obeying, but there's no heart behind it at all. And unfortunately, this chapter gets worse because we see more and more of Jonah's rage and self-importance and selfishness come out as he continues to have this conversation with God. So Jonah knows that God is going to save Nineveh, but he decides, I'm going to go set up camp outside of Nineveh anyways. I'm going to set up a little shelter, and I'm going to sit and watch, and maybe God will still destroy them. So he sets up his camp, and he's out in the sun, and it's hot, and it's beating down on him, and he's cranky, and he's not happy. And God is gracious to Jonah again. He doesn't deserve it. He most certainly does not deserve it based on his behavior. And God gives him some relief anyways. He causes the plant to grow up. So imagine the plant is growing up behind him and gives him shade from the sun. Over, who knows how long, but during one day, this plant grows up and shades Jonah, and he's grateful. He's thankful for the fact that he's now not dying in the heat of the sun, and he's, he's, he's thankful to God that God made him happy by giving him the plant. And here comes the but. But God kills that plant overnight. So it grows up during the day, dies overnight. And here is how Jonah responds. Verse 8 in chapter 4. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said. And I'm so angry I wish I were dead. Surprise! Jonah wants to die again. This plant gave him a little bit of comfort, and as long as his personal comfort was satisfied, he was okay. He was comfortable, so whatever. God takes away the plant, and he wants to die again. He's right back to where he was. And what this shows to us, what it reveals to us, is the poison that is inside Jonah's heart. He is so infected with the poison of pride that he decides he knows better than God damn the consequences, for lack of a better way of putting it. He would rather die and not be on this earth than suffer the consequences of changing his heart and following God instead. His pride shuts his ears, shuts his heart, so that he can't even hear what God is saying anymore. 
He's just completely deaf to it. But God isn't done with Jonah yet, though. His brilliant response to Jonah is what actually closes out the book. So this is how it ends. Jonah 4, chapter, or verse 10. says, But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? So God shows compassion to Jonah. And his compassion, as always, God's compassion is far deeper and far broader than we can ever understand, and certainly more than Jonah understands in the moment. He points out, Jonah flips out over this plant. Number one, it's a plant. It grew overnight, or grew during the day and died overnight, come and gone like, like dust in the wind. And at the same time, Jonah doesn't care about the 120,000 people that live in Nineveh. People that God describes as not knowing their right hand from their left. In the Bible, that just means they don't know right from wrong. They don't even know what they're doing because they have no context. And that's not enough for Jonah to have mercy on or pity on them. God even goes so far as to say, what about the animals that live there? Would you have mercy on the animals? And Jonah's like, nah, dude. I don't, I'm, I'm, they deserve, they all deserve punishment. It doesn't matter if it's people or animals, they all deserve punishment. And throughout this entire book, God is building his case against Jonah. Even with multiple interventions from God, saving Jonah literally from dying himself, saving him from the scorching heat, it's not enough. And this book ends with a question. And that question is not for Jonah's sake. That question is for our sake as the readers now. When God says, should I not have mercy on those people? He's asking that question to us, and he's asking that question in the context of the entire book of Jonah, his example of his life. And the negative example of what he becomes, his hardened heart, his story is a warning for us. It's a warning that if we follow after him and what Jonah did, there are severe consequences. And there's two lessons we need to take out of this book from it. Number one, do not run away from God. Don't do it. The second one is, do not expect God to move in the way that you want him to. These are the two traps that Jonah is falling into. And his life is a foreshadowing of what happens if we do those things, if we resist God. It's easy for us in hindsight to look at Jonah and say, oh, poo-poo, Jonah, why would you do that? That's dumb. Everyone knows you shouldn't resist God. It's easy because we have, we have the distance. But we have the same temptations in our own lives today and every day. We need to avoid bringing our expectations of what God will do when we decide to serve him. We naturally do this. We obey with the expectation that God is going to move in the ways we expect and that we want him to. And when he doesn't, we get upset. We get bitter and we get angry. I mean, look at Jonah. Jonah knew that God was going to be merciful to Nineveh. He knew before he did anything that God was going to do that. And that is the reason he ran away in the first place. We talked about it in the beginning. We didn't know why. The reason is because he was trying to avoid God being gracious to the Ninevites. His motives from the beginning were awful, terrible, terrible reasons. And when God's plan differs from that, when Jonah essentially fails in what he tried to do in the beginning and has to go and God is gracious, he'd rather, he'd rather kill himself. He'd rather be dead than, than live in a world where he is not right and God is instead. And this is not something that we are immune to as Christians. We're not. Let me give you a couple examples of how this can happen. Let's say you sign up for a missions trip. Say you're going to Haiti or to Rwanda with Renovation Church. As a natural consequence of that, you will create expectations inside of yourself of what will happen. 
We do this as humans. It's just the way we're designed. We set expectations of how God is going to move. He's going to, you know, reach people for Jesus, or we're going to have this building project, and it's going to go amazing, and we're going we're to help all these people. What happens if that doesn't happen? What happens if you don't reach all the people you wanted to reach? What, happen, what happens if the building project doesn't go because you don't ever get the building supplies? Are you going to get angry with God and say, God, what are you doing? This isn't right. You screwed up. Or what if God takes you way beyond your comfort zone on that trip? You have to eat food you don't want to eat. You have to sleep in a place you don't want to sleep. You have to talk to people you don't really feel comfortable talking to. What are you going to do in that circumstance? Are you going to say, God, this isn't right. Why would you do this to me? I'm not comfortable here. This can't be your plan. You must have messed something up. It seems like it's crazy, but this happens. This is the reason that renovation says in every mission strip, do not set expectations, because when you do this, anger and bitterness are waiting when those aren't met. Because they probably won't be, because you don't know what God's going to do. Here's another example. Let's say that God says to you, hey, you know what? Chris, I want you to go talk to your friend and tell him about Jesus. And Chris says, okay, God, it seems pretty obvious. I'll do that. I'll go talk to my friend, and I'll invite him to church, and I'll tell him about Jesus. And Chris goes and talks to his friend, And the friend says, get away from me. Get out of my house. I don't ever want to see you again. Get out, Chris. Why would you do this? What's Chris going to do in his heart in that moment? He's going to say, God, what happened? You told me to go and talk to him, and then he didn't follow Jesus. He didn't come to church, and now he hates me and never wants to see me again. How is this good? God, you messed up. That is the natural response we want to do as as just sinful people. And the the scary thing is, if we hold on to those expectations, they are toxic to us. And we begin to respond like Jonah does, that God is wrong. We get angry because he didn't do something right, meaning he didn't do things the way we wanted him to. And it'll seem so wrong to us because we had this whole thing mapped out in our brains and what would happen, and it was going to be incredible, and he he didn't do it. And so we have to resist that. We also have to be on guard in our lives Because that kind of resistance to God builds up naturally over time. You and I, we're sinful people. We naturally resist God. We don't want to be by him when we're just sitting in neutral in our lives. Sin is in the driver's seat when you're in neutral, and sin does not want you anywhere near God because sin is telling you, you know better than God. And so if we're not resisting that temptation to think that we know better than God every day, by reading in the Bible, by praying, by being in community, like in house groups, spending time with other Christians. If we're not doing that, we will fall into the same trap Jonah did. Think about this. Jonah heard God speak to him. Audible words from God saying, go do this. I don't know how many times in your life you've heard audible words from God, but it doesn't happen very often. Jonah had the privilege of hearing from God, and he still fell into this trap. It would be arrogant for us to think that we wouldn't as well. We have to constantly resist that. We have to constantly walk away from that and submit instead to God's will and to follow him with gladness and excitement to see what he will do. Letting go of our expectations and instead saying, show me what you got, God. Show me how you're going to move so we can see that. And the really scary thing is, if you hold on to this bitterness too long, you will walk away from God. Guaranteed. This is so toxic to your soul. This is so toxic to who God is calling you to be that if you hold on to angerness and bitterness, if you hold on to these missed expectations, the end game is you will walk away from God. 
You will hate God because he is not good, because he doesn't do right things, and because he is not fair, and all of those things because he didn't do what you wanted him to do. So don't fall into this trap. Resist this because the end game is the worst possible scenario. God is also going to call you to things in your life that you don't like, and you probably don't want to do. I can speak from experience on this. He does this, and it's hard. But what matters is how you choose to respond to it. How are you going to respond to it? If you run away from God, I'll tell you right now, there's a price to pay. It might be the fish in Malax eating you up. It might be something else in your life. God will get your attention. One way or another, he will get your attention. And when you do respond, if you don't run, when you do respond, don't do it like Jonah does. Because Jonah's only responding to God when he's out of the fish. He's only responding to God to get something for himself. It's getting him out of the fish. It's saving his own life. That's his, that's his reason for doing it. He's escaping death. And his heart is not changed. He's not in line with God. He's not saying, yes, God, let's go save Nineveh because they deserve your compassion. It's, God, get me out of the fish, and then we'll talk. And as American Christians, this is a trap we fall into all the time. With how consumeristic we are, we just want to get for ourselves. It's all about us. It's just, it's, it's a temptation that we have that other parts of the world don't have in the same way we do here. But it is something we have to be aware of. Because oftentimes we might decide to obey God just to improve our circumstances. What do I get out of this? If I follow God, I'll be a better person, and I'll be happy, and my marriage will get better, and it'll just improve my life, and it'll be great. But that's not following God. Doing that to get something for yourself is not following God at all. That's doing that so you can get what you want from God, because God is the cosmic vending machine where you can push the buttons and get the thing you need at that moment. That's not the way it works. And when you go down that path, that's what's called going through the motions as a Christian, is just operating the duties of a Christian so that you can receive the blessings that you want in your life without the consequences, or without the sacrifice, potentially, of actually following what God has in your life. It becomes about us. And friends, just like with Jonah, hear me on this, just like with Jonah, time will reveal what is in your heart. Time will reveal what is in your heart. Whether it's like Jonah, where you actually are hating God, and you're angry and bitter, and you'd rather be dead than see his way be done, or you're following him gladly, and you're excited and seeing where he's going to move in your life. But time will reveal where your heart is at. may not be now, may not be a month from now, but eventually it will come. And you don't want to end up like Jonah does. You don't want to be in that trap. Following God is always better, every single time. And even though God can still move when we disobey, or when we begrudgingly obey, or even when we obey to get something for ourselves, I can tell you from experience, it is a million billion times better if you obey because you want to, because you want to see how God moves, because you're glad about it. You'll be far happier seeing him move and seeing him use you than you would be trying to fight him. And if today, if you're running from God in your life, or if you're obeying him just to get something for yourself, I beg of you, please stop. For the love of God, please stop and feel a little bit of the love of God in your life. Because that destination where Jonah went is where you're going right now. Don't fall into that trap. Submit yourself to God and follow him. Resist the temptation that you know better. Resist the temptation that what God is calling to you is wrong. Because he knows better. And if you are intentional and humble in your submission to God, and you follow him and submit to his way, I promise you, I promise you, 
He will move in and through you in ways you could have never imagined. Never have imagined. So don't run from God. Don't follow him for your own reasons. Submit to God. Trust in him and see how he'll move in your life. Let me pray. Father, I just thank you for the opportunity for Jonah's example to speak into our lives, Lord, to speak to the temptations and the struggles and the resistance that builds up inside of us, Lord. I just pray that you would move against that in our lives, Lord, that you would help us resist that temptation, that as a community we would come together every day and encourage one another to stay humble and to submit, Lord. And I pray that through that submission that you would move in mighty ways, not the way we expect you to, Lord, but in the way that you know is best through your plan, and that in all of this, Lord, that you would be glorified above all things. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.